right that he has. So the control is that he has the power to do all his will. Authority is that he has the right to do all his will. And it's that notion of the right of God, the authority that he rightly possesses, that we're going to be considering this morning. Uh, And he starts off with, Frame starts off with a couple of claims that kind of do a good job of generally laying out where we're going to go in the chapter. Um, He's going to say, because of the extent of God's authority, let's think about the, the differences and how much this encompasses a lot here in these two things. Because of the extent of God's authority, all of God's commands are right and proper and oblige us to obey. Now, what do you think about that just uh, at the outset here? Does that strike you in any way? Does that seem like something that, we, that, that we're pretty comfortable with? Uh, it creates a moral obligation on us. Uh, because, of the, because of the reality of his authority, by definition, when he gives a command, it immediately has with it an obligation on his creation to obey. Uh, the, the second of the two here well, is almost exactly the same, but it's not talking about his commands. It's talking about his promises. And I was, This was really striking to me as I thought about this. Um, because of the extent of God's authority, all of God's promises are trustworthy and oblige us to believe. Have you thought about that? That, that, uh, that really creates for me a deeper sense of the patience and kindness of God. And we all know we're all weak. We're all sinners. Uh, we go through life uh, as believers. We learn more and more about what God has promised us. Um, We also learn more and more about how prone we are to doubt his promises. And we have a general sense that we shouldn't doubt his promises. Uh, But just think about this. This is saying that the reality of God's authority means that every time he makes a promise, I am morally obligated to trust him, to believe him. Uh, when When I do not trust him, I'm not just kind of... Being weak, I am, I am sinning against the authority of God by not trusting his promises. And you think of how often we do that and what that means about how kind he is to us. How patient he is with us, that he is regularly not trusted. And yet he is gentle, he is patient, he accommodates. He teaches us through our experiences that he in fact was trustworthy all along. And he lets us get to that place where we look back and go and weep and say, I, I should have trusted you. Why didn't I? You've proven yourself to me all my life. And again, I couldn't trust you. God, help me to trust you more. He leads us in this very shepherdly, fatherly way. Uh, but it's, and we, we rest in that and we should. It's just helpful, though, I think, at least for me, to be reminded that every time I do that, I am ignoring a moral obligation I have. To trust him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That really underscores faith as a choice. I am choosing to trust. 
That's right. We can sure mischaracterize the notion of walking by faith and not by sight um, in a way that removes this act of obedience. This is a conscious act of obedience. That's a very good point. Uh, he, he says, when, when God tells us to believe in the truth of his word, we must do so, both because his word can never prove false and because we have a moral obligation to believe it. And Frame is saying the reality of that is, is due to the fact of the authority that God possesses over his creation. Absolutely. That's right. And what we're getting to is where, where uh, really where Ken started us off at the beginning of all this, which is uh, we're finding ourselves, as we learn more about God, where it's always driving us back to is what we think about the Bible itself. Your words are talking about the authority of Scripture, not just as it commands and as it gives God's promises, but as it gives God's account of reality. We, we realize more and more that we, he knows and we don't know. Uh, and we, we exercise our faculties, we struggle with things, but always with this realization that he's to be taken, taken at his word. Um, he, he helps us in this chapter to transition from chapter 4 about control into chapter 5 about authority by, by um, pointing out that these two things are not completely exclusive of each other. They imply one another. The reality of God's strength and his control carries with it, uh, just implicitly, these, these realities of authority. Uh, and, and there's a couple of ways that it does this. Number one, control implies authority because of the reality of God as the creator. If he is creation's creator, then just by definition, he is the one who possesses the authority over that creation. He made it. My kids get this. If one of them builds a thing of Legos and the other one goes and just blows it up, there's an immediate moral outrage there. I made that thing. You didn't get to just come. With creation comes a, a, an authority over, over that thing. Right? Um, so you have these, this statement in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. We, some of us got into this a little bit uh, yesterday morning in the men's study Rob was leading. We were thinking about some of these realities. When, when, when it says God saw that the light was good, we're not at all to take from that that he created the light and then he, he looked at this standard and measured it and, and said, yes, it passes this test of goodness. What we're hearing here is God looking at this that he made and displaying the authority he has to make declarations about it. He's the one who decides what's good and what's not good. And he looked at it and declared it to be good. Um, the, his, his role as the creator of it uh, is one aspect of the reason for the authority that he has to make such declarations. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. These are statements of God's authority over everything in the world. 
And then you see the next word says, for, here's giving the reason why he has that authority, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. He's making this connection between God's control and the authority that comes, that comes as a result. So control implies authority because God is the creator of these things. But this extends far past that act of creation. This is also the case because he is the creation's governor. Every second of every day, he is the one who is governing, directing uh, these things. Job 41, 11, we'll be looking at Job a couple of times this morning as we're thinking about God's authority in Scripture. But God says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. You think of Romans 11, uh, these, these questionings. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? What you have here are questions of, of obligation. Who has put God in their back pocket so that he is, he, they have some authority over him? He is obligated to someone else. And the expected answer is no one. Here's the reason. For... From him and through him and to him are all things. And under this subheading, we would focus on that idea of through him are all things. He is the creation's governor at all times, and that carries with it uh, this authority. So we see that there's a connection between last week and this week. This isn't completely separate. Um, But we could think about authority on its own. Uh, as an aspect of lordship. We, we talked, and uh, I think Seth especially brought up in his chapter the, the idea of God's name. Were you there for that? When he talked about the idea of Yahweh, uh, the I am of God. And, and we reflected then on what that name is supposed to be portraying to us. Uh, and one of the things we saw, there, there, is, there can be some ambiguity into how we should translate it into English, but one of the things we saw that I would underscore right here is that uh, the, God's name that he gave has always conveyed to his people a, this reality of his lordship. Uh, this has always been the case. We can see it in the way that, they've, that, that God's people have always treated that word. And he mentioned, he just made reference to the connection between Yahweh and, uh, and Jehovah, and some of these things. Uh, I want to put up a slide. I thought this would be a good chance even just to learn more about this. But it also really makes clear to us how, uh, how God's people have read the word, uh, his name, the word Yahweh, when they encounter it. All right? So there's some Hebrew on this next slide here. All right, you ready? This is kind of fun. There it is. Um, you got three Hebrew words here. The first one's on the top left, second one's on the top right, and then the third one's on the bottom, all right? So the first one, top left, that is Yahweh right there. That's the name of God. Now, Hebrew didn't have any vowels. This, is what the, this was the problem. There was no, no vowels, no written vowels in the Hebrew language. They knew how to pronounce their words, but there was nothing written until actually the 10th century A.D. The Masoretes, long after Christ, got worried that the Jews were forgetting how to properly pronounce their words. And so they created a vowel system to make sure that, that their people, as they read Hebrew, they're reading the words correctly. Right? Um, and they did that for all of their words, except for that one. Because Yahweh is such a special word. 
you know, long before then, they were not even speaking the word. And I remember being taught that when their scribes, at a certain point, when their scribes were, were transcribing manuscripts in the Old Testament and they got to the word Yahweh, they would break their writing utensil, get a new one, write the word, break it again, go take a bath, come back, and continue. This is what they, this was how they regarded this word. It's a special word. And they didn't want people pronouncing it. You're not supposed to say it. What's a great way to keep people from ever saying the word? Well, what if you put in wrong vowels so that they, when they try to, they say the wrong thing? Then they'll never say the word, and everybody's safe. Everybody's okay. So what they did was they took the word Yahweh, and they put in vowels from a different word, to create what they wanted people to actually say. The results on the bottom, and the result is, when, well, let's start with the second one. So he, he, here's my point here. What did they do? Uh, they took the word Yahweh, and they said, let's take another word and use its vowels. I wonder what word they used to decide, to, to, to merge together. They took another word that for them meant the same thing, but that would produce a different pronunciation. The word they took was Adonai, which means Lord. They took the vowels from their word for Lord, and they put them on the word Yahweh, and now they get Adonai, now we get Yahovah, and so now we have the word Jehovah. And the King James and others, they write Jehovah, it's fine, it's what, they want, what the Masoretes wanted to happen, um, but what that word is, it's a combination of Yahweh and the vowels from the word Adonai. And I, again, my, my whole point in all of that, aside from just the fun fact of it is, when they're trying to decide what word to use to do this, and they're trying to be careful, they choose a word that means the same thing in their mind, and they go for the word Lord. Um, the, the, uh, much earlier than that, when the Greek Old Testament was produced, this was 3rd to 1st century B.C., when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they took the word Yahweh and they just made it kurios, which means Lord. They've always seen lordship in God's name. This is what it's always meant for them. And not because they just decided that, but because this is how God has always used his name. When he spoke his name to his people, it was in an authoritative context. Let's look at a couple of uh, examples of this. So again, what what we're doing is we're just seeing that um, the idea of authority by itself is implicit in what, what the Bible says God is to us as our Lord. The idea that that carries authority with it is, is something that's always been there. So Exodus 20, uh, look at the back and forth here. All right? uh, I am the Lord, your God. Where am I? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And of course, this is the start of the of the Ten Commandments here. So you have a um, statement of lordship. You have immediately then a statement of control. Let me remind you of what I have done for you, my power. I have, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. And immediately after that, you have a claim of authority. I get to tell you what to do. And I'm telling you not to have any other gods before me. And here's nine more commands I'm giving you. And I have the right to do that because I am the Lord. The fact that I am your Lord carries with it this authority. Uh, Leviticus 18, he does this twice. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. 
I am the Lord. Why is he putting that in there? Well, it's the sufficient explanation for what he's just said. It's it's a sufficient reason. Why Why should I do this? I'm the Lord. Oh, okay. That that answers my question sufficiently, according to God. If you know that I am the Lord, then you know to obey because I have authority. Um, Jesus in the New Testament treats this connection as a matter of course. In his simple statement in Luke chapter 6, think about what this means. What is he saying, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Because the question is, what's underlying that is that there is an oxymoron here. Either don't call me Lord and do whatever you want, or call me Lord and do what I say. Because calling me Lord means you're recognizing authority that I have over your life. That's what I love about narrative stories. You, get, you almost can hear just the flow of the conversation. And this is, this is one of those statements that was very simply put, but probably was really stuck in the minds of of, the, of some that, that was, they were hearing him. Um, let's continue looking at the extent of God's authority. This is really what we did a lot last week, was to see um, how strong does the Bible portray his strength, but also how far does it, is it said to extend. That's what we're going to do right now. Um, ask God's word. How far do you say that God's authority really reaches? Are there places? I don't know why, but I've thought of... Um, the Lion King, at a couple of points, they're not even really connected with each other. I haven't seen that in a while. Uh, but this last week, I've thought of that. Um, do you remember when, when uh, is it, what's the dad, Mufasa, is sitting with, with, with uh, his son, and he's saying, all that, the son, all that you see the son touch will belong to you one day. And his son says, what about that shadowy place over there? And he says, you must never go there. This, that's where my, my power ends, or something like that, right? His authority doesn't reach into that place. Is, are there places where God's authority does not reach? This is, this is the, the question here. Um, we'll see this under a couple of headings. Here's the first one. If, if God owns everything and possesses complete authority, now we see from his word that he declares then the standards of human conduct. So his authority reaches into our lives and gets to lay out standards, standards of living. Uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? God is the one who has the authority to answer that question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. If God sets the standards, one of the things that that means for us is we don't get to argue with him. We have no leg to stand on in bringing an argument against him when it comes to the standards that we find in Scripture. For us to debate with God, the Bible will say, is as ridiculous as clay debating with the potter who is, uh, who is making use of it. Uh, we see that in Isaiah 45. We noticed last week that there are five places in the Bible that use this imagery of potter and clay to make these points, both about control and about authority. Listen to how it's put. I think we're used to, to, to looking at Romans about the potter and the clay. Look at how it's phrased in Isaiah 45. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. 
Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the works of my hands? This is the kind of place where, for us who believe and who, who, who recognize the authority of God's word, it is helpful to us as sort of a regular dose uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our spiritual development to come back to passages like this and to just read them, to just hear them, and to be reminded of how much authority God possesses to rule over my life. Without that, we can get into patterns and, and uh, slowly begin to justify or to excuse or to think that we're somehow an exception or a special case when we clearly know what God has said, but there's extenuating circumstances. We're really good at that. But we can't, that can't hold up when we come back to this sort of questioning. Will you give me orders about the works of my hands? Will you quarrel with your maker. And of course, just like last week, every time we are in a section like this, we're taking a, just a sampling of a huge number of passages that would do this same thing. But we see here God having the authority to set the standards uh, of our living, of human conduct. Uh, to kind of broaden it out a little bit, we see statements about God's kingdom, which is expanding, uh, but in a real sense, obviously, he is king over all of creation as well. Uh, but let, let's hear a couple of things that, that, is, that are said in God's word about his authority over his kingdom. Uh, in Matthew chapter 20, he, uh, Jesus is teaching and he starts like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like... And then he tells this story. Do you remember the, the parable um, about the... Uh, the landowner who hires workers to come in and work, uh, work his land. He hires them at five different times in the day, and he agrees with all of them, I'll pay you a denarius to come and work for the day. Right? And they all say, okay. And so he sends them in and they work, and at the end of the day, they all come out of the field to be paid, and the ones who started in the morning notice that the ones who started at the 11th hour are getting the same amount of money, and they, they present a moral objection. Right? They object on moral grounds. And starting in verse 13, here's the response uh, of this owner. He replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. And here's the question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And it seems to me that the point of this parable is in what I've bolded there. Jesus is laying out a description of the authority that God has over his kingdom. He is allowed to do what he chooses with what belongs to him. And so in a, maybe a kinder way, the same questions of Isaiah 45 are being asked of these here. Do you, do you quarrel? Do you... Do you, do you uh, think you have a right 
here that uh, maybe you do not have. Uh, let's keep looking in general terms. Any thoughts or comments about these passages? I know we're kind of just pointing to them as examples and going on. There's a lot more we could say about each one. Uh, but stop me if you have any, any uh, insights or things you'd like to add. Uh, continue looking in a, in a broad sense, asking the scriptures, how do you portray God's authority? Uh, there are two, two main words that Frame is going to use to try to categorize what, what is said. The first is that when we look at the Bible and say, how, what's God's authority like? We find that God's authority is absolute. It's absolute. And in fact, it's absolute in more than one way. It's absolute uh, in that it cannot be questioned. We've kind of been seeing that so far. His authority cannot be questioned by his creation. It's absolute in that sense. Um, It's interesting in that to think about um, times when questions are posed when God's authority is presented. We know, like for example, there are places, um, Deuteronomy 18, God gives his people tests and he says, when someone comes as a prophet in my name, the fact that you are submitting to my authority doesn't mean that you just have to accept what they say without question. You can test them. So they need to be able to um, they need to be, be speaking in my name, and they need to perform a sign that ends up being true, and their prophecy needs to come true, right? They're testing the credentials of that prophet, but once those tests are passed, what are they to do to the words that the prophet brings? There is no questioning at that point, right? There is only, uh, there's only obedience. Um, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 17, you remember Paul went to the Bereans with, the, with these claims about the gospel, and they took them and went immediately to the scriptures and tested them. And that's, that's not challenging God's authority. That's verifying what, uh, what has come from God. Uh, but once it is clearly from God, and thankfully today we, we, we have his word uh, in a way that, that makes us not need to struggle in some of those ways. We have the complete and revealed word of God. Uh, when we do, and it says something... It cannot be questioned. And I hope that that's where you are in your life, that you, none of us are perfect, but it is such safe ground if we have decided, hopefully long ago, that whatever I find in this, because it's in here, it's immediately incapable of being questioned. My job is to begin to struggle with, um, where am I failing to apply this? How can I understand this better? That's where my struggle is. But thank God, I never have to struggle with, um, should I believe this or not? That's a great safeguard for us. Um, this is something that, that Job had to learn. We've, been, we've seen him once before this morning, Job chapter 40. Uh, he has been uh, asking for an interview with God so he could demand answers from him. Give me an account, God, of what's been going on here. And there's a long response, but this is a part of what God says. And the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And that's at the end of a lot that God has said. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. God taught him that, and he had to be a bit stern with him to make that point. Uh, it, it's, 
this is not in the chapter, but I, I, have, I have always felt like we learn a lot about God as we read in the Bible, people question him and see how he reacts. Um, you think of Judges chapter 6, you remember Gideon? God speaks to him and gives him commands, and Gideon says, you know, just so I'm sure, let me give this test, I'm going to lay out this fleece, and you manipulate it so that I can be sure here. And God does it. And he wakes up and sees the miracle and then says, you know, I can conceive of another way this could, maybe this isn't from you. Do another uh, uh, miracle for me. Uh, let me question you one more time. And God does it again. Right? He doesn't zap him. There. Um, there's, there's two times in the Gospel of Luke that it seems like God's authority is being questioned. I think it's really only being questioned in one of these. But um, Luke chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist's father is in the temple, Zechariah, and Gabriel is sent by God to tell him about John the Baptist being, being conceived and born, remember? And here's how that conversation went. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And Gabriel's answer is, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the, days, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Clear display of God's authority being above our questioning. But just a few verses down, you have Gabriel seems to leave and go to Mary and gives her the news about the conception of Jesus that's going to happen. And Mary's first response is, how will this be since I am a virgin? Sounds similar to Zechariah, how shall I know this? Um, but I don't think it is the same because of what, what happens. Gabriel's response is really explanatory. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Um, and therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary's response is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. I've, 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 heard, I've read these in, in Judges 6, and, and I've thought, okay, it seems like what we're seeing is an example of, of, our, of our Heavenly Father knowing us, knowing where we are, knowing our heart, and responding to us in the ways that we need. It would seem that, that Mary is not challenging God's authority, but she is struggling in a different way. And the way God responds through Gabriel is to be very gentle and explanatory to her. Zechariah would seem to be responding in a um, doubtful, sort of challenging way. And we know if we're, I mean, parents in here know that there are times where what your child needs is, is, is some sternness to have a point made. He is disciplined here. He is rendered mute until his, until, uh, until, until his son comes onto the scene. As a, as a tool to teach him and to train him in humility, in trust. Um, Gideon is in an incredible situation, if you go back and read that story. Terrifying, odds are against him. God's chosen instrument, he is questioning. I think what he did was sinful. God meets him gently, accommodates to him. I think we see, 
uh, especially in light of the reality that God's authority cannot be questioned. That when we see it questioned at times, the response in God teaches us a lot about who he is and makes us very thankful for his gentleness to us. Um, So, anyway, God's authority is absolute in that sense. Whether we fail or not, uh, his his authority is never to be questioned. It is never... um, uh, morally capable of, of being questioned, if that's the right way to put it. There's another way that his authority is absolute. It's absolute in that it transcends all other loyalties. God's authority is not the only authority that exists, right? Does a parent have real authority in the life of their child? Yes. Is there real authority in the family structure of husband to wife? Yes. Is there real authority that a government uh, exerts over its citizens? Apparently, because the Bible commands us to respect that authority, right? There are are many authorities that we live amongst in our lives. But his authority is absolute in that it transcends all the rest. Uh, My authority over my child, or let's say, I'll make it less personal to me, we'll say the government's authority over its citizens is relative to this. I must obey it up and until the point where it asks me to violate this authority, and then I say, nope, sorry, do with me what you need to, but there is a higher authority, right? So in that sense, the government's authority is not absolute, but that's not true of God's authority. There is no such thing as a higher authority, and he calls us on this in his word. He makes this very clear that we are to think in these terms. Um, down to the commandment in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you think of, of uh, this very all-encompassing statement in Matthew 22, for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. You think of the commandment to children, honor your father and mother, not just to children, to, to all of us, to honor our father and mother. Uh, this is a fundamental commandment of the law, Jesus affirms this commandment in the New Testament, uh, and yet he says in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter, <coughs> whoever loves son or daughter more than me um, is not worthy of me. This is a clear statement of when these two authorities meet, one is absolute and the other is not. And he commands us to have thought through that and reckoned with this reality that his authority is absolute in this sense. And I would just draw your attention especially here to who's speaking in Matthew 10. This is Jesus claiming this place. Jesus claiming this authority that is only proper to ascribe to God. Right? Um, this is what undergirds our, our, uh, the Protestant idea of sola scriptura. Uh, that there is no other authority that may compete with God's own words. And so we, we depart from the Roman Catholic Church when they say that human councils have an authority on par with God's words. No, they, they do not, because there's only one absolute authority, and it is, it is God. Um, which means we don't get to add words to this, and uh, we also don't get to bind the consciences of God's people with human traditions. That would be putting them on par as if they were the same. It's the very thing that Jesus um, 
challenges the, uh, the authorities of the day were doing, teaching as if they were doctrines of God, the traditions of men. Um, it's absolute in a third way as well. It cannot be questioned. It transcends all other authorities, all other loyalties. Um, and it's also absolute in that it covers every single area of our life. We, sometimes we're, we look back in the Old Testament and we kind of marvel, man, that, the Mosaic Law was all-encompassing. It gave authoritative commands about how to handle your week, about what you could eat, about uh, sexual practices, about children and their raising, about everything in their life. That was very all-encompassing. But the New Testament is not less encompassing when it comes to speaking of God's authority over every realm of our life. Is it? You have some pretty expansive statements. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, I'm getting to tell you how you are to do it, and I'm telling you to do it all for the glory of God. Statement of authority over our eating and drinking and everything that we do. Uh, Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.15, Paul says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that's, I mean, that, that's mentioned, that can be thought of in an evangelistic context. It's also thought of, it should be thought of in terms of my own sanctification. I need to be living looking for the places where there is a rogue thought that has not yet submitted itself to God's authority, and I need to take that thing captive, capture it, and submit it to the authority that God has. I don't get to have a rogue thought. That's not, I have no right to do that. Every, every one of my thoughts is obligated to submit itself to God's authority. But the problem is, right now, as I'm as I'm living and breathing, every one of my thoughts is not yet captive. So I have some work to do. And just notice the universal language in these. We have uh, words like whatever, all, everything, every. And the point is pretty clear that the Lord's authority extends to every aspect of human life. Frame has a memorable way to put this, as he usually does. He said, in the chapter, he said, the Lord is totalitarian as only he has the right to be. Well, that's a pretty good way to, to say that. Um, so God's authority is absolute. We're going to move to a, the second word to describe this, unless there's any interjections or thoughts. No. Okay. The second word we could use to describe God's authority is a word we used last week to describe as control. God's authority is universal. Uh, let's look at a couple of places to, to see this expressed. Uh, you remember the Great Commission at the end of, Ma of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And on the basis of that, he gives these commands. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then a statement for next week. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
on the second one that I'll put up here, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Does this work up there? Yeah. Um, this word, I'm, I'm a grammar nerd, so maybe it's just me, but that word has bothered me sometimes. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That is not trying to say that this is what then ought to happen as a result. It's not that kind of a should. That should is there because so that sets up what's a subjunctive verb mood. So some of our translations, I think it's even better to say, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. It's not a statement of kind of the ideal situation. This is the result. This is the result of what God has done in exalting Jesus to this place. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess this. That is an inevitable future for every tongue and every knee. Some will do so with eternal joy, and others will do so with eternal hatred and regret. But every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. That is the result of what God has done. And it's because of the extent of God's authority that he has bestowed on Christ. It is universal. Um, he, frame, at this point, there's, there's a section in the chapter that he does something really interesting. It's kind of a pause, but I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, he talks about how, uh, he kind of makes the claim that when we're thinking about the story of mankind, when we're thinking about redemptive history, which is really what the Bible's doing, is giving us the story of what God has done um, for us. He, he makes the claim that authority, divine authority, plays a central role in that story that God is telling. He says, uh, one way to summarize the Bible is to say that it is a story of God's word to human beings and their response to that word in belief or unbelief, obedience or disobedience, acceptance or rejection. At each point in the biblical history, the word of God is the thing at issue. That word may take many forms, command, promise, divine name, covenant, law, gospel, prophecy, song, history, epistle, preaching, teaching. But whatever form it takes, man's response to it, under God's providence, has eternal consequences. He says this is a good way to summarize the whole Bible. The story of men being confronted with God's authority in his word and their response of acceptance or rejection. So he kind of goes through the high points of redemptive history. The first thing that God ever spoke to man was a claim of authority. He was defining for us our purpose and our, uh, our moving forward in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Statements uh, of God's claim of authority to tell us who we are and how we are to live. You think of the serpent when he shows up on the scene in the story. And what he immediately goes after is the claim of authority that God's word has. Questioning their understanding, the, the clarity of it. Did God really say this? And then straight out suggesting an, a competing authority claim of his own. You will not surely die. 
and creating in them this concept that I might actually get to choose. I might have the place of choice between God's authority and another, maybe even my own. Inserting this notion that there was any right to stand in uh, judgment over God's authority. You have the flood not long after that, and the New Testament calls Noah the herald of righteousness. He's going to the people, and he's preaching. He's declaring God's word to them concerning what is to come, and their response to it is everything in that story. Frame says, again, it is God's word that is at issue, for there is no other way to know that a flood is coming. Man's response to God's word is literally a matter of life and death. You think of what happened with Abraham. What's the defining moment in Abraham's life? God leads him through all sorts of things to, uh, to bring him to this point, and then he, the rest of his life is spent fleshing this out. Um, you have uh, this statement in Genesis 15 about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he becomes then the example. Romans 4 points to him is the example of how God works in, in his children's life to rescue them by bringing them to this point where they come to God with empty hands, not with hands full of stuff they've tried to work in order to earn. Abraham is held up as the example of, of how this works. His belief, his submission to the authority of God, tantamount. Uh, Moses. God sends Moses as the bearer of his word, which demanded a recognition of authority. And God says in Exodus 7 to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And just stop there for a second. What happens then when they see, when Egypt sees that God's commands actually came with real authority? What will be the result of that connection? Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Uh, You have, of course, at the pinnacle of redemptive history, the person of Jesus, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses. He affirms the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, but he also does what Scripture forbids men to do. He adds words that he claims have, have authority to be regarded uh, and Paul, uh, or Peter says of his words in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They follow him out of a recognition of the authority that his words uh, carry with them. So it's fun for me to see, and kind of compelling to see, how all through the story of, of uh, human history, what's been at stake is God's claim of authority. What will be done with his claim? Of authority. Uh, now we're, we're, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, I want us to use that time to to draw some conclusions here. Uh, we are we are not people who want to be satisfied with just reading, noticing, and learning uh, without applying the arguments that Scripture's laying out. So let's think about some of what we've seen about God this week and last week in particular. We've seen uh, that God is able to do everything that he desires to do. His control over his creation, his ability to work his will, is absolute. We saw Daniel 4.35, none can stay his hand 
or say to him, what have you done? Right? Listen, hear these and let them all build a very big picture of God here. We've seen that he has authority, he has the right to do anything and everything that he does. His authority is absolute. His authority is universal over our lives, over his creation. Now try to hold that picture of God in his complete capability and complete freedom from any external constraints. All right, think about that picture. And then imagine him looking upon creatures that he has made who have decided to fight against him. Can you picture that? He turns and looks at them, and they've decided to rebel. It's an eternal insult against him. It's the sight in Psalm 2 that makes him laugh, says, when he sees them trying to throw off his chains. It's how they're thinking of his lordship over them. He looks at them, insulting him. He looks at them. Can Can you picture that? And then picture him moving toward them in kindness and mercy and love at cost to himself, sending his own son to die in order to rescue them from this position. We cannot begin to appreciate the love of God in Christ as we should until we're able to see how great is this God that chose to act in this way. He is accountable to no one. There is no one standing over him telling him what to do. He has a type of freedom that we could never have. And this was what he chose. The one of whom it's true that none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's, that's the perspective that this creates in us toward God. To maybe better appreciate just how, from, from what a point of strength and self-sufficiency and rightness he chose to condescend and to, and to even humble himself to love his creatures. This also gives us perspective about ourselves. Uh, In Jesus, we've said, in Jesus resides all authority, universal authority over your life, and complete authority. And that is true. Isn't it true no matter how you're living right now or where your allegiances, your stated allegiances lie? That doesn't have the least bit of an impact on the reality of his authority over your life. And what that means for you, what that means for us, but I'll just put it like that, what that means for you is that there is coming a day where you will be held accountable for how you have lived this life. Every second of it has been lived under his complete authority. And the Bible says there is a reckoning for that. We will be held accountable. And in particular, the Bible's emphasis in this regard is that you will be held accountable for how you have positioned yourself in relationship to Jesus. We've seen as we walked through the history of redemption, we saw a number of places where people were confronted with his authority and waved it off. This is the question that the Bible would put to us. Do you wave off the authority that Jesus claims to have over every second of your life and every thought in your head? Or do you bow before that claim of authority in recognition 
and submission. And the Bible sums up our obedience. There are many number of ways, many commands were given and a lot of ways that we are to obey him and to walk in his ways. But I, I see John 6.29 as a summary statement or maybe a foundational statement when it comes to this. Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. So what is our, how have we positioned ourselves before Jesus in his claim of authority? That's what it all comes down to. If we've submitted to it, well, then we find that he's given us a whole lot of commands that we are to joyfully submit to and walk in, right? Uh, This has very much uh, tangible on the ground results. But it all starts with this. Do we receive the claim of authority that God has given us in Christ? Uh, we are oh, out, of t- out of time. Any, any th- uh, thoughts or comments before I close this? Those poor Sunday school children's church workers back there. No? Okay, let me, let me close this in prayer. God, we simply thank you for revealing yourself to us. There is so much about you. There's much we can learn from you by looking around. But there is so much in our fallen state that we cannot see. We are blind. And we rely on you to open our eyes and to show us, uh, show us wonderful things from your law. And we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, as you have saved us and given us a new heart and, and eyes to see, Lord, maintain in us, protect, grow in us a joy of learning more about you and a joy that moves immediately to application and obedience. We love you and thank you for who you are, for who you have created us to be, joyful servants, humble, obedient children of the greatest Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.